may be a blessing to us this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ talked a little bit earlier in the service about popularity and what a strong draw and attraction that can be. And maybe one of the ways that you can see that especially is when you think about it the other way and, and the idea that sometimes can come into our minds that the whole world is against us. We don't like that idea. That's being unpopular to the nth degree. And so it seemed to stand to be reasonable to think that being popular to the nth degree would be the more favorable approach and situation. It can be a very huge draw. We, we don't like, after all, being excluded. If you're young people or you're boys and girls and you're, you know, if you're boys and girls and you're going out for recess or if you're uh, in a crowd and there's a group of people together and they don't want to include you, well, you don't, you don't like that, right? You don't find that to be appealing. You don't want to be on the outside looking in. It would seem like if I'm popular, then I am in. And if I'm not popular, then I'm really nobody. Being popular, can it be even more important to us sometimes, it would seem, and certainly in our society they like to talk that way, than being right. But being part of the crowd is not nearly as important as being in the right crowd. And being part of the right crowd. David had 400 men who joined him and made him their captain. Now that wasn't exactly the end crowd. But it was the right crowd because their leader was the Lord's anointed. You and I aren't always going to be popular. We may not always be known as being in the in crowd, but that is never the important thing. The important thing is that we belong to the crowd whose captain, whose leader, is the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the importance of that this morning as we look at these contrasting kings here. Uh, the one known as David, the other one known as Saul. Now when, when you read, at least I have this when I read 1 Samuel 22, I, I cannot help but think about the story of Robin Hood. David reminds me a bit of Robin of Locksley, who takes for himself this band of able men who, like him, have been unjustly treated by an unjust king. And like the men of Robin, the men of David are loyal to him, almost without question. Instead of Robin Hood and his merry men, we seem to have David and his merry men here. Now, of course, there's differences between these two stories. Robin was not the one who was going to take over England's throne. He was simply waiting for King Richard the Lionhearted to return from his crusades. David, on the other hand, was the one who would take over the throne, and legitimately so because he was the Lord's anointed in contrast with one who, though anointed by the Lord, had become a shell, had become a facade of the Christ that he was supposed to be. 
Because that's what the anointed one was, right? It was a picture, or supposed to be a picture, of the Christ who was to come. And so we have two kings here, really, and a, tre a tremendous contrast between the two of them. And we want to look at that contrast this morning and try to point out the relevance. I hope we can do that. My calling, right? Not just to say this is what it is, but so what for me? Uh, hopefully get to the point of things uh, and see this from a, a Christian point of view, this passage that we're looking at. A contrast of two kings, and we're going to look in the realm of support and desertion, obedience and disobedience, and protection and destruction, because those are the three areas in this passage where we especially see that contrast between the two kings. So we look first of all then at the contrast between David and Saul in terms of support and desertion. Everything seems to speak about support on David's side here, while everything seems to speak of desertion on Saul's side, whether it was perceived or whether it was real. Whether you speak to the support on David's side or the desertion on Saul's side, each one expresses the value of David and Saul in their respective position. Desertion's all around Saul here either perceived or real. He accuses his servants of conspiracy. Very early on in the passage, he's talking about the fact that nobody tells me anything about how David is going about making a covenant with the son of Jesse. That Jonathan, I should say, was making a covenant with the son of Jesse. No one is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as in this day. Everybody's against me. You're all against me. He basically says that. Nobody feels sorry for him. You see, he's the victim. He's been unjustly treated. This is how he's painting his picture of himself. This self-portrait. There isn't anything wrong with him. What he deserves is all allegiance, and he gets none. He deserves all praise. He's the one who is the dispenser of gifts and, and goods as the rightful king of Israel. And you know, sin becomes a compounding problem that way with us, right? When we will not admit to it. And that is certainly not what Sam, Sam, uh, Saul is doing here. By nature, we want to shift the blame to somebody else or justify our evil actions and thereby deprive ourselves of the benefits of Christ's grace and forgiveness. Sin also, also keeps us from proper discernment and proper perspective. It skews all our thinking. And it did that to Saul. Saul's paranoid. Saul accuses his servants, Jonathan, David, and then finally even Ahimelech, who of all people was trying valiantly to convince Saul that not only was he loyal, but so was David. Where are you coming up with this, Saul? Did David want to be against Saul? Did Jonathan want to be against Saul? Were his servants against him? Not necessarily. Was, was Ahimelech against Saul? 
if they were in any way, it wasn't because of their own rebellion. They became that way, either directly or indirectly, because of the emptiness of Saul's kingship. It happens because of the emptiness of this facade of a Christ, this false Christ. There is emptiness in anti-Christ. And this is what the guards recognize when they hear Saul's command to slaughter the priesthood of the Lord. This isn't the command of the true Christ. Because we know that the true Christ upholds the priesthood. We even see that here in our passage. The word in prophecy, the priests in mediation, and the king of the land, who David really is, in ruling God's people and kingdom, were supposed to work in harmony. Not at such destructive odds. That's not the, percept, uh, the preceptive will of God. This was the exact opposite of what the true Christ would do. He would bring the offices of prophet, priest, and king together like never before. Saul's desire was exactly the opposite of what Christ was going to enable his church to be. This false Christ is destroying the priesthood. Christ came so that there would be a royal priesthood. A people devoted to the Lord. A living sacrifice that would live forever. Devoted to the king. Saul was intent on destroying this priesthood. And everything it stood for. Mediation between God and his people. Is he, what's he doing? The ability to serve God constantly and devotedly through that mediation. Saul wants to destroy that. He doesn't want to uphold it. And no wonder the guards would have nothing to do with this. No wonder they, they deserted this false Christ that way. Where would God's favor be if they followed this false Christ this way? If there isn't any priesthood, how would anybody be able to know and serve God? All that would be left with no mediation, with no intercession, would be the wrath of God poured out against us. As it turns out, the only one who's willing to follow the false Christ was one who didn't belong to the people of God in the first place, and that was Doeg the Edomite. He was of Esau. He wasn't even part of Israel. And so all this destruct, this, this, this desertion, just underscores, you see, the emptiness of following or trusting anything or anybody except the true Christ of God, Jesus Christ. That's what it's speaking to. There is just emptiness in following anybody except the true Christ. There is no advantage to it. The guards were brave in disobeying this false Christ, but they did the right following the direction of the false Christ is a refusal 
of the only mediation and intercession there is between God and man. Following the false Christ removes the opportunity there is to devote our lives to God's service. See, that's where the rubber hits the road. For the sake of the priesthood. Now, not first of all of Ahimelech, but of Jesus Christ himself. Because he's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. And he calls us to those offices as his followers. Such a such a godless loyalty is simply not worth it. And they're mindful of that here, are these guards. Having a godless loyalty to a false Christ, which is what Saul is, isn't worth it. And it isn't worth it today either. On the other hand, look at the support that David receives. Certainly he's on the run and he's fleeing from the wrath of Saul. But the support that he receives is in stark contrast to Saul. Saul is losing people. And David is gaining people. He gains his family. He gains his father's house. He gains those who share with him the injustices and the consequences of the false Christ. David gains a prophet, Gad. David gains a priest, Abiathar. And David hasn't stopped being faithful to Saul. He hasn't done anything deserving of death. Now you can look at this and say, well then what's the application here? Be good and you'll be popular? Well, we know very well, don't we, that, that we can seek to do what's right, do the right, and still not be popular. <laughs> David certainly wasn't popular with Saul. There's a temptation to be popular with our kids as parents or even as teachers because we want them to like us. We don't want to be the bad guy. But there's a temptation to be popular with our kids instead of being right with our kids. But doing right, when you're trying to do what's right, wherever you are, there is that risk that comes with that of being unpopular. Now, you don't have to be a stumbling block. You don't have to go about doing things and being a jerk about it. That's not the question. But doing right can make us unpopular. Doing right isn't always the easy thing to do. Doing right with our friends can make us unpopular, and they don't become our friends anymore. And then you wonder, well, what kind of friends were they anyway? If doing the right thing makes me unpopular with them. So be good and you'll be popular is not the point here. The point is that in looking to David for help here, whether it was his family fleeing from Saul's wrath or these men who came to be uh, part of David's company to do something about this injustice, these people were doing the right thing. That's what matters. 
They were looking to the Lord's true anointed for relief from evil, and that was the place to go. In David, the offices were united. This was the place to go. They weren't fragmented as with Saul. The king of the land, as the Philistines even called David. The prophet Gad, whom David obeys. And Abiathar, who is in safekeeping with David. They're in harmony. Prophet, priest, and king. People who, like Hannah, are in need of God's favor, who know the hardship of Antichrist, well, they can find hope, they can find contentment, they can find replenishment in this person whom God has ordained to be their deliverer, and where prophet and priest and king are working together in harmony. And that's exactly where we need to go all the time, isn't it? We need to go to the Christ who has all authority as king, to the Christ who intercedes for us as priest, to the, to the Christ who forgives us as priest, and to the Christ who his prophet calls to, to us to find rest in him. Living waters that will refresh and renew to the word. That reminds us of our wealth in Christ and the hope that only He can give us and to be willing to be led by Him. Because that's the right thing to do. may not be the popular thing to do. That doesn't matter. It's the right thing to do. And that's the relieving thing to do. There's also contrast here between obedience and disobedience, to be sure. The disobedience naturally now belongs with Saul. So Doag, through Doag, he not only has the priests of the Lord killed, but he applies a, a ban, one of these uh, holy war bans on God's priests, where everything is killed. The sheep, the oxen, the kids, everybody. As if they were like heathen nations that Israel was supposed to destroy, and which Saul failed to do in the case of Amalek in 1 Samuel 15. But he's not afraid to do it to the priesthood. The priesthood is treated like the scum of the earth. Just like Jesus Christ, who was a great high priest, was treated as the accursed one. And yet we can find even comfort in the midst of these atrocities, and that's important for us. The, the, the evil of mankind we read here is, is really something that can be used for God's purposes. Because God is sovereign. And God will work everything to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Eli's household was going to be judged, we hear earlier in 1 Samuel. And this is where it happens. Even by the evils of men, God uses evil for His purposes. Now, that was especially true with Jesus Christ, right? The one treated wretchedly by the evils of men. But in that wretchedness, the forgiveness of sins is found for us through his death. It reminds us of the comfort that we have 
that even in the most atrocious of things, where they crucified the Lord of glory, God was able to use that to his good. We're also comforted by the fact that even though Saul tries, he's not able to completely destroy the priesthood. The Lord's not going to let that happen. He doesn't kill everybody. Does Saul. There's going to be mediation in Israel. God's favor is going to continue in Israel in the person of Abiathar here. Gospel is not going to be snuffed out when evil raises its hand of atrocity. We need to remember that today. People need to know that. There's all kinds of atrocities. There's all kinds of evils. But it's still the day of salvation. It's still the day where, when good news is proclaimed to us, and the time when the priesthood continues, not in Palestine, not in the confessionals of shrines, and, and not in the priesthood of pagan religions, but priesthood continues in heaven, where Jesus Christ is reigning, and he's changing lives, and he's interceding for those lives, and when you're a Christian, he's doing that for you. And so while evil remains around you, beloved, don't forget that a priesthood remains and continues far beyond the evils around you. A priesthood remains that transforms your life in so many ways when you're a Christian. And it's for that that we praise our God and we continue to serve Him daily and pray to Him daily and serve Him devotedly because while there are those atrocities around, grace abounds all the more. Think about Saul's disobedience to David's obedience. What, what do we read about David? He's seeking the will of the Lord and he departs to the land of Judah in obedience to Gad the prophet. David is renewed. He comes to his senses. And, and that's a healthy attitude as he seeks the will of the Lord. And in that way, he's like Jesus Christ who always sought only his Father's will. David has found that relying on himself hasn't been working. It hasn't been bearing fruit. So when nothing else works, he goes back to seeking the word of the Lord and how true that is for us all. People are looking for good advice in all kinds of places, but it's not always sound biblical advice. In fact, the last place many want to look is in the Bible. But when nothing else works, we should pray that others and we will go back to the Word to find the kind of advice we need. David heeds the advice to go back to Judah. He goes back to the land of promise. He heeds the call of the Lord that says, in, in, in essence, let me be your protection. Just follow me. And that's the spirit of Christ, and that's the spirit to which you and I are called. Leave the results to me. You just follow me. Finally, we have the contrast of protection versus destruction. Saul destroys, we hear, the father's house of Ahimelech, while David, we read, protects his father's house 
and protects the priesthood of the Lord. Saul acts as if he's God, who alone has the right to judge, who will, who will be cut off from his sight, and, and who will have their name remain. He takes a vengeful role that only the Lord may hold. You know, you hear about people carrying out holy war today. They're trying to usurp the sovereign justice of the Lord that way. That isn't their job. That job belongs only to the Lord. It's also what we have to avoid ourselves in vengeful attitudes. Begrudging attitudes that we're tempted to take against those that sin against us. That's not our calling. That calling belongs only to the Lord. But David, on the other hand, does everything that he can to protect and preserve his father's house. He pledges the protection, not only of Abiathar, but of the priesthood that he represents. There's going to be a future for the house of Jesse. There's going to be a future for the house of the priesthood. God uses David to ensure that. However, David isn't used to the degree that God would use Jesus to that end. In his resurrection, the house of Jesse continues forever. That's how it continues forever. That's how it's guaranteed. That's why that kingdom lasts forever. He is that branch from Jesse's stump. In Jesus Christ, we have the future of priesthood guaranteed, also in a way that David could never guarantee. He says, I'll protect you, Abiathar. I'll protect the priesthood. Nothing like Jesus Christ could do. Because Jesus preserves it by his work on the cross and his everlasting reign. He preserves it so that people like you and people like me can be the priesthood that he's called us to be where we serve the Lord in our entirety with full devotion both now and into eternity. Yeah, the, the, the contrast between Saul and David is stark. When you look at support and desertion, you see the emptiness of being against Christ. And you see the relief that's found in Christ. If you look at obedience and disobedience, we are consoled that despite the evils of men, God overcomes that. And he even uses them for his purposes. There's going to be mediation. There's going to be intercession. There's going to be grace. And when everything else fails, we're reminded of the calling to return to the will of God that Christ himself followed for our sake. In the realm of protection and destruction, we're warned against vengeance and that in Jesus Christ we have a priesthood that remains forever for our eternal benefit and for the glory of the Lord as we serve him as priests of the Most High. You see the contrast. Well, may these contrasts move us ever more to an appreciation of what we have when we're in Christ. If we don't have Christ, 
then may we turn from the emptiness of false Christs like Saul. May we turn from the false Christs of emptiness to the, to the true Christ gives us life to the full. That's why we praise Him. That's why we live for Him. And that's why we pray to God through Him like we will right now. Let's pray. <clears throat>